Ladies and gentlemen, it's 2012 and 007 has the sacred responsibility of looking after an old and beloved lady. That's right, I'm talking about Daniel Craig's special appearance in the London Olympics pre-opening ceremony skit with the Queen parachuting out of a helicopter, but also of another film that came out that same year, his third installation, where we learn more about the backstory of Bond and finally see Judy Dench on the ascendancy as the ultimate Bond girl. I speak, of course, of Skyfall. And with me to discuss this movie, of course, is a man who absolutely does not want to be formally introduced to you until you've given him a close shave at a casino in Macau. It's Stuart Late. <laughs> Hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. I say you've never really known a co-worker until one of them has shaved you with a straight razor. Yeah, right up the throat there. Right. Yes. <laughs> Just really in a position of absolute uh, exposure to another person. <laughs> the third voice you can hear with us this evening, she is a longtime Brisbane reporter, an absolute gun, and she's currently the Freedom of Information Editor for Channel 7 here in Brisbane. Please make welcome Alison Sandy. Hey. Thank you, Nat. Hello. And hello, Stu. I'm so pleased to be here. It's very exciting. Well, we are so excited to have you because... Every week we've been putting out these podcasts and, you know, tweeting and trying to start discussions. And without fail, every week there you are with an opinion, with theories, with uh, trivia. And I was like, Stu, we've got to get Alison onto the podcast. Absolutely. So she sounds like she knows things, which is more than we can say. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. I've learned a lot from you. In fact, my favourite Bond movie to date was Pure Eyes Only. And then you told me that a stuntman died in the bobsled scene. And I'm like, oh, I'm devastated now whenever I watch it. Well, yes, I must say that one of those uh, reasons why I knew you were so passionate about Bond is because you sort of mounted a, a defensive for your eyes only. I think even before we had reviewed it or recapped it, it was like, you guys have to watch for your eyes only. It's the best one. And then I don't think you were entirely happy with our positioning of it. So, you know, the floor is open, Alison. Why do you love that Bond movie so much? Well, it is for sentimental reasons. And I guess that is the beauty of me coming in to review one that, I don't have a sentimental attachment to because Pure Eyes Only was the first Bond movie I, I saw and I must have been about eight years old, which I don't know if my parents were really responsible in letting me watch Bond at eight years old. I don't know. Anyway, I, I think kids watch probably a lot worse now. But it, I just really liked it. I, li I, I couldn't understand why I didn't go for BB at the time because I thought <laughs> she was much prettier than the other girl. <laughs> now a lot of uh it's all very clear to me and I'm glad he didn't go for BB I think I think it was important um stage of reckoning for Bond that he you know he did have a line drawn which uh I thought was pretty good and I think that you guys pointed that out quite well as well and I like the white dove thing I don't know I just thought that was really good and I don't know if you mentioned this in the episode and this wasn't the reason I loved it of course but there is a very young Tywin Lannister as a henchman in that um, there he, certainly is he goes up the the ski lift 
And of course, he's um, shot on the beach along with Cassandra Harris, who was Pierce Brosnan's ex-wife. Um, unfortunately, she's dead in real life too, which of course you mentioned. Yeah, I guess sentimental reasons. And um, look, in fairness, you guys were pretty good with it. I, I suppose in the lineup, or you know, and, and I know that there was a mention of seriousness of that and um, one of the things that I remember Roger Moore saying he didn't want to do was kick the baddie off the cliff when he was in the car and um, he said that's not my bond his bond is a lot more smooth and that's right you know laid back and everything and he didn't want to do it but he did do it because they made him do it and he, he was actually <laughs> pleased that he did do it I think in the end and it was a much more serious bond anyway so that's in a nutshell I think other than the beginning when you guys were like oh I don't know if I really like this but then you went on and it's like you really liked it so you know <laughs> it was a sleeper I think <laughs> it worked out quite well it was a good yeah. turn after Moonraker because both Stu and I have a big love of Moonraker and it's just it's mm. sheer silliness and audacity but then to kind of come back and pull it in and be a bit more of a spy thriller was probably yeah. a good move yeah I think so they did go that more serious thing but of course went the other extreme with Octopussy straight after which <laughs> I loved that review of Octopussy I really and I enjoyed having Tom Selinski in there defending <laughs> Octopussy <laughs> I, I actually, watching this movie, when Ben Wishaw came on, I thought to myself, because in, in his, obviously, his podcast, The Best Pick. Um, oh, your best and pick pod. Yes, I think they actually say who would play him. And he said, I'd like to think Cary Grant, but actually it's Ben Wishaw. And when he came up, I actually thought, yes. <laughs> yeah, Tom does bear a remarkable uh, similarity to the to the Ben Wishaw character in, in terms of appearance slightly, but definitely in, in demeanour and expertise. <laughs> and I mean that with absolute love, Tom, if you're listening. We have a huge movie to discuss. So I just thought I, I alluded to it in the intro, but this was 2012. This was 50 years of James Bond in cinema. So 1962 was Dr. No, and here we are with the 23rd Bond film in 2012. Now, this film was actually supposed to happen a bit earlier, but there was some money trouble with MGM. Again, we ran into money trouble at the end of the Dalton era, and now we're running into money trouble again here. So they were able to get out of bankruptcy at the end of 2010, and so then Eon Productions was able to give Skyfall a release date of November 2012. I actually think they kept the name back. They said it'll be, you know, the, the 50th anniversary Bond film, but I think they kept the name back for a little while. The name Skyfall was confirmed as the title at a media conference on the 3rd of November 2011, during which Barbara Broccoli said the title has some emotional context, which will be revealed in the film. And is it ever? So a writer named Peter Morgan was supposed to be doing the actual screenplay for this film. You might know him as the writer behind The Queen, Frost Nixon, and he is the creator of the Netflix series The Crown. Absolutely, yes. So he, he was supposed to be writing Skyfall, but then MGM filed for bankruptcy, the film production stalled, and so he left the project. But he maintained that he had written its big hook and the script was still based on his original idea. Well, I was going to say that this feels like a very Peter Morgan-y sort of movie in many ways like, like just the sweeping vistas of, of scotland and all that sort of thing like it just it just feels like a very it feels very him are you suggesting that there's a bit of a tony blair the queen from the queen in a little bit. And m <laughs> 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 well 
Sam Mendes was brought in to direct this film. He'd worked oh. with Daniel Craig in a film called Road to Perdition. His first film was American Beauty. He was a British theatre director who did American Beauty and then, of course, became a famous film director. Um, he hadn't really wanted to do it originally, but uh, I think Daniel Craig convinced him. And once he started hearing about ideas for the f- script, he got really excited. So the screenwriting team came back to Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, our favourites from... Well, pretty much all of the films so far. And they brought in another chap, an American, who has won, or sorry, been nominated for Oscars three times, once for Gladiator. Sure. He wrote the screenplay for Gladiator, once for The Aviator, and then Best Adapted Screenplay for Hugo, and that is John Logan. Absolutely. So, so as, as we've said, Purvis and Wade are great for, like, the little details, but they need an actual writer to come in and make a good movie for them. <laughs> so, yes, it was Mendes who actually said, let's bring Logan in. And he says that uh, writing Skyfall was one of the best experiences he had had in scripting because of his collaboration with Sam Mendes. And also British playwright Jez Butterworth also provided uncredited contributions. He has written The Ferryman 2017, Birthday Girl 2001. I think Nicole Kidman was in that. Mendes, um, just to interject for a second, isn't he, Miss, well, was Mr. Kate Winslet? He certainly was for that a time. Yeah, I think her second marriage was to to Sam. So that's interesting. Uh, yes, but um, he had worked with Kate Winslet on Revolutionary Road, in which mm. she reteamed with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, filming began in the end of 2011 and was mostly filmed in the UK, uh, England and Scotland, but also bits of uh, Turkey and China because, of course, Shanghai and Macau. So I guess we should start with our minute challenge, Stu. Um, See, I'm trying to be best pick pod to impress Alison. So, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm all over the place. Um, Stu, do you want to start with the minute challenge and we'll see how that sparks discussion? Sure. Okay. Well, the first thing I had, of course, on my list for Skyfall was Skyfall. (laughs) Right, the the amazing theme song in this movie. Now, Natalie, you said to me, I'm not sure whether it was on mic last week, but you said that you were actually a little bit underwhelmed on a second listening of of this song. Yeah, but then I saw the movie again and was like, oh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. (laughs) But Adele was made to do Skyfall. I mean, do a Bond theme, I should say. Adele's voice is just made for Bond, isn't it? Funnily enough, I think I feel like she probably could have gone slightly bigger. I know that sounds weird. I feel like her voice is so amazing that she actually could have probably punched it even higher, but I think they kept it to this like more mysterious atmospheric Do you know what what it is though? And I find it really interesting and it really clicked because we've been having this discussion. We've been bagging out obviously the theme song that's going to come up next week. uh, (laughs) And and obviously, you know, the the No Time to Die theme as well, we we were sort of underwhelmed by. And I'm like, what they're trying to do, because Adele is the perfect encapsulation of this era of Bond song, right? So we had the the wonderful You Know My Name for Casino Royale, and then we were sort of a little bit underwhelmed by Quantum of Solace's theme, but they kind of hit it on this one, which it's it's throws back to the old Shirley Bassey ones, but it sort of throws forward to that new style of Bond as well. She's the perfect middle ground, and the theme song to Spectre and No Time to Die go a little bit too far in the other direction, where they're not sort of big and brassy, they're, they're a lot more subdued, and Adele manages to really walk that line in a really cool way, I think. And also, you know, just me being sentimental, the title is in the song. The title of the <laughs> it song, is. She, it does help. <laughs> she sings about Skyfall and it works. It really works. And even and, in the song, she says, at Skyfall, you know, so it's like it's it's of the movie. Yeah, well, the whole credit sequence to this film just totally gives away the entire plot. 
Um, he does, yeah. <laughs> on a first watch, you're not going to know that, but on a rewatch, you're like, oh, that's that bit and that bit and that bit. So they they definitely put a lot more Easter eggs in the opening titles than they used to. Speaking of the opening titles, I was watching this one going, this is way better than Quantum of Solace, and it's because they got Daniel Kleinman back. Sure. (laughs) I don't know why they – he apparently he stepped aside for Quantum of Solace to let this design studio MK12 to do the Quantum of Solace logo, a title sequence, I'm I'm sorry. And then he comes back for this one. There's no real reason on my research, a.k.a. Wikipedia, about why, but I'm so glad they brought him back because he's so good at this. He really is, and it's just one of those things where it seems more and more like Quantum of Solace was this very strange experiment that Mm. they kind of, they threw a lot of things at the wall and none of it stuck, so they just went, let's go back to what was working. Yeah. This feels more like a successor to Casino Royale than Quantum of Solace. Even though Quantum of Solace is literally starts about (laughs) 20 minutes after the end of Casino Royale. (laughs) Well, except that we worked out, didn't we, during the recording of of that episode that we think that maybe there might have been some time passed while Bond went and found Mr. White and possibly did some spying. But, (laughs) yeah, ostensibly very, very close. Very close after he shoots Mr. White, that's for sure. Uh, Adele is pretty good. She wins the Best Original Song Oscar, which is the first time that a Bond song wins the Oscar. And then I think Sam Smith follows it up with Spectre, which we'll get to next time because that was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just really tense about Spectre coming up now. (laughs) It's looming over me. I wish there was a word. We're so close, Natalie. We're so close. I wish there was a word to describe the sort of the sense of something looming over you. Um, Mm. Yes. If only there was a word. But uh, anyway. Alison, what, what did you think about the song? Uh, I thought it was great. I love Adele, though. I mean, and also it, it quite sentimental to, I think, as we were saying before, harking back to the Shelley Bassey era. And so is the movie. I mean, you've got the Aston Martin making a resurgence and obviously a lot more into his origin. Um, but also, yeah, a little bit of the traditional Q, Money Penny, they're all back. So, yeah, I think it, it's actually real well suited. But, you know, you can't go wrong with Adele. As her voice is perfect for Bond. Mm, she absolutely is. I'd be happy with Adele doing, like, more like Shirley Bassey did. But no, 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 they had to get Billie Eilish. Fine. <laughs> Fine. I agree. She could belt it out. I mean, because I live near the Gabba, and when Adele was playing at the Gabba, it was like she was in, like, in the house, you know? Boy. <laughs> Like, seriously, I went and had a shower halfway through and it's like I was just singing along. She's in the bathroom with me. And... <laughs> did she do Skyfall at the concert? Yeah. Yeah, she did. Oh. Yeah, she's so good. I love her so much. She's lost a huge amount of weight this year. Yeah. And was also nearly cancelled. Oh, yes, because she wore some... Um, <laughs> she wore some her hair of... in a certain way that was apparently yeah, uh, culturally insensitive. <laughs> but, yeah, I just, I'm just kind of furious that in the year of the COVID-15, you know, the quarantine 15, where it's just like stretchy clothes are the way to go, that Adele has just lost like 40 kilos. Come on, Adele. <laughs> we'll see Rebel Wilson now as well. So, you know, what's going on? I don't know. But, you know, that's Hollywood for you. <laughs> Stu, do you want to carry on with your list? Yes. My next item on my list is Grizzled Old Man Bond. Now, this is the... <laughs> This is the movie that does it. We've talked about this before, but this is the weird thing. Let's talk about it again. This is the weird thing about, I'll I'll talk to anyone about this. You get me started. (laughs) The Daniel Craig era is weird. 
because they start off with the prequel. They start off with Casino Royale, Bond Begins, and then they, they have this weird little appendix of a movie in Quantum of Solace, and then there's Skyfall, which is immediately, you're a grizzled old veteran who's like seen thousands and thousands of missions and you're all busted up. And it's like, okay, that works in the context of, you know, it's the 50th anniversary of Bond and so we're, we're doing, you know, some metatextual commentary on the franchise as a whole. Mm. But it's really weird for that specific Bond, for Daniel Craig. He starts in his first movie as a young agent and then immediately is the grizzled old man. And the thing is, and this is with the benefit of hindsight, is that from the trailers for No Time to Die, which of course has now been delayed until April 2021. Yes. So expect an extended uh, hiatus for the Raven Bond podcast <laughs> until we can deal with that movie. But it should give us just enough time to watch Thunderball. Yeah. <laughs> I have something for you. I have to say this Thunderball is only just in the top 10 for the longest movies. I'm happy to go through the list with you later, Stuart. I know it feels like it's the longest movie, but it's actually number nine. No, no, Alison, actually, I'll, I'll just correct you there because I, I do have it written down here. Um, Thunderball is actually three months long. <laughs> it's, it's three months long. It's three calendar months. It, it's it's a bizarrely uh, long film. Yeah, uh, they have... punishing, A punishing watch. It's the kind of film that they put on when you're, like, doing service in Antarctica and there's, like, <laughs> no sunlight, so they just put on Thunderball. I agree i really do it is but no time to die apparently when it does finally come out will be the longest bond movie too. Oh, well, I don't what? That. the figures don't support that but i'll take you <laughs> well this one is two hours and 25 minutes this is it a long film feel, it doesn't feel like two hours and 25 minutes this is a breezy watch i don't know that i'd agree that it was breezy uh, <laughs> it certainly didn't feel like quantum of solace to me felt like snap 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 this one did feel more elongated in parts, particularly the whole Home Alone sequence at the end, but we'll get to that. Um, but uh, it, it's it's not interminable, like, you know, for example, a Thunderball in Stuart's eyes. <laughs> yeah. But they had some good lines in Thunderball. You know, he got the point. I think he got the point. Alison, <laughs> I don't disagree with you. This whole Thunderball thing is just a very personal vendetta by Stuart Francis Seymour Late. <laughs> His middle really? names I may have just made up. <laughs> yes, it's 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 a very stew specific niche gripe. That yeah. movie is is somehow one hundred and twenty percent underwater. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Even the dry on land scenes feel damp. Yes, you just feel yeah. it through the screen. <laughs> somehow you watch it and you've been underwater for twenty minutes. I don't. <laughs> I wonder what would happen if you set up like an underwater scuba cinema. <laughs> And you just went down there with a tank to watch Thunderball and how soon sure. would you have to refill your tank and go back down to finish the film? <laughs> There's yeah. an experiment. There is a piece of performance art theatre in that. I'm going to get Absolutely. a grant for that. Yep. <laughs> All right, where were we? Well, uh, so basically just my, my point is it's a it's a, a weird thing that the, the franchise starts out with a young, sprightly, just getting his double O license, Daniel Craig, and then immediately pivots to Grizzled Old Man. It's that's just always struck I, me as weird. That's yeah. what I wanted to say. Sorry, Stu. But yes, No Time to Die from the ads for that film. I've remembered where I was now. <laughs> that looks like a film with Bond coming back out of retirement, he's the grizzled old man. Yes, well, well, because he, again, he went and retired. Like, it he retired feels, at the end of, of Spectre, so... It feels like that conceit of Bond as the grizzled old spy is more appropriate for his fifth film than his third film. 
Yes, I would 100% agree with that, yes. But I think they obviously just wanted to do, as you said, in your very clever I went to film school way, some metatextual commentary on the <laughs> the franchise being 50 years old. So they yeah. threw it in there. In Absolutely. In defence, uh, he does die. Yes. Yeah, there's a bit of <laughs> I feel like there are some nods to older Bond films in this film without being overt like Die Another Day was. I feel there are nods and certainly the concept of when he says, what's your hobby or something, and he says resurrection, that's definitely an ongoing theme with Bond, that he dies and comes back to life or he's, you know, set up to be dead and is actually undercover. And Well, and also that he occasionally changes his entire face and personality. <laughs> That's a regeneration, not that's a regeneration. That's a regeneration. That's a Time Lord thing. Just a technical thing. Oh, my God, maybe James Bond is a Time Lord. That explains so much. <laughs> yeah, it, it is It is really fascinating that he's, particularly in the scenes with Q as the new hotness, you know, 25-year-old super freak, smart guy, and then all of a sudden he's mocking Bond for not being able to do as much damage as he can do with his laptop. And it's so obvious like well of course you're not going to be able to do what bond can do in the field why why are you mocking yeah but but in 2012 that was still a new idea i think i think in 2020 we're we're very much aware that like cyber cyber terrorism is a thing yeah but you know in 2012 it was still a cool new idea why does that feel like it's not that long ago Stu? and why is everything retreating further and further into the past even though it felt like only (laughs) yesterday what is this concept of time einstein please report for duty uh, continue with your list, Stu. Yeah, so the next item on my list was a goodbye M. Yeah. Dame Judy Dench leaving us in fine style. She was absolutely amazing in this film. You've gone way ahead. I was expecting, you know, earlier on. <laughs> well, we, we, we write these things down as they come to me, and, and, and M looms large in this film. She, she's one of the co-leads. Well, I do like at the beginning, I, I, I should uh, mention there was a bit where Ray Fiennes basically is telling her that she's got to retire, right? And, uh, and he's saying you're going to get a GCMG. And now I know what this is from Yes Minister Days, GCMG. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the honours list, you know, the CMG, the Call Me God, the KCMG, the Kindly Call Me God, and the GCMG, God Calls Me God. <laughs> <laughs> that show, man. Yes Minister, Yes Prime Minister. It holds up. Oh. It holds up so much. All they need to do is, like, throw some new wallpaper on the walls and throw some computers on desks and it could be it could be now. Yes, yes, absolutely. Just a lot of the, the fundamentals underpinning it are just still the same. I work briefly in government. I feel... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Mm. I digress. Um, yes, yeah, so M, what I actually had M on my list as well, and what I wrote was Judy Dench, the ultimate Bond girl. No, that's fair. I have an argument about that. I'm going to disagree. Okay, ultimate Bond girls, and, and look, there have been some pretty average Bond girls. I mean, Mary Goodnight comes to mind. But um, <laughs> she couldn't, like, when people came to kill her in that courtroom, she just stood there. You know, like yeah. there was no, you know, whereas Ray Fiennes comes out and he shoots a few baddies and does, I mean, what does she do? I mean, can't shoot. I think this is actually kind of a mean movie to women because Money Penny can't shoot either. You know, it's just like, it's just. I think you're right. I think there's definitely arguments to be made about the depiction of women or interactions with women in this film. And I think maybe it's just that they put them all together 
And so it seems more overwhelming. And I'll get to money. I want to have a whole conversation. About I, I assumed you wanted to talk about money, Penny, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but continue on with your list, G. Uh, so the uh, Goodbye M, Dame Judy Dench, absolutely wonderful. Uh, the next item on my list is uh, Silver is the Joker, quite literally. Um <gasps> So he, like, the filmmakers were obviously intensely inspired by Heath Ledger's performance in The Dark Knight because that's basically what this villain is. His backstory is slightly different, but the way he operates is very Jokerish. He's got he's got plans on plans on plans. I've never thought of it in that framework, but you're right. He is he's very Heath Ledger Jokery. Absolutely, it's all part of the plan. Because I was going to bring this up. Maybe I'll just bring it up now and see what you think. I loved the overly complicated escape plan that he had that he purposely got himself captured by mi6 so that he could purposely get his laptop to infect their systems hack them Mm -hmm. and allow him to escape allow him to go underground through the tube have people there to give him a costume change get to the court where m was and kill her but at the same time how did he know she was going to be in that particular courtroom inquiry like has he got people helping him update all the systems i suppose he probably does doesn't he but (laughs) like what if they'd changed the room or what if i suppose he set it all up hasn't he that he's the agents have been revealed they'll get killed so m will be called to answer for her well, look, look, Natalie, I'm... these are these are all these are all very good questions, but honestly, you can answer most of them with with you know basic like backroom. Oh, he had a guy on the inside and all that sort of thing. Yeah. The thing that I want to know is how did he know the train was going to be there at that time? It is the tube. They do run pretty quickly. I guess. I mean, like <laughs> he did seem to have it very well timed. <laughs> it was. It was. It was precision. It was precision. And the fact that he was able to blow up, like he knew Bond would follow him. So he had a radio bomb ready to go so that a train would crash in on Bond, but not kill him. (laughs) It's just, it's one of those things where you just can't think too much about it because then you start going a bit mad. Just appreciate that he's a a super cyber villain. Just that sequence though. That's the thing. Just that sequence is a little bit ropey. Otherwise, like Javier Bardem as Silver is fantastic i love him he's an amazing villain he's great he's definitely is he playing him gay because i was that that scene with bond when he was you know he says oh you know you know has your training prepared you for this when he was almost you know (laughs) you know getting his hands very um close to uh the merchandise and um (laughs) The magical penis, I the think you'll find. And and then, you know, of course, Bond quips back, what makes you think this is my first time? And he's like, oh, Mr. Bond. You know? <laughs> so is he is he paying him gay? Yeah, there seems to be this, like, weird tinge of Liberace to him, and I don't – there's definitely a campness to – I think he's less, he's less playing him gay more so that he's playing him as a Bond villain. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. he's playing him as, like, a Mr. Bond, you know? <laughs> yes, extravagant. And, but yeah. I do – I do get what you mean about sexuality because I think he's maybe trying to, if he knows that Bond is, you know, famously a ladies' man, quite famously, sort of an integral part of the franchise. So if he's playing that up to try to make Bond feel uncomfortable or feel destabilised mm. and Bond is just like, eh, you know, I'll, I'll answer your, I'll go you quip for quip, basically. And also he's, he's sort of alluded to have been Severine's lover or have rescued her from the sex trade. 
But that's not to suggest that they had, you know, there's been plenty of Bond villains who have very weird sexual predilections and <laughs> some of them are, are asexual or have no sexual interest and they have girls just to be pretty things. Some like Scaramanga have women for a very particular purpose. Some of them are really into fish. Some of them are really into fish. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was very afraid of him too. I mean, that scene in the um, in the casino where, you know, yeah. And she's shaking her hands, actually shaking. She she was a really good actress, I thought. I thought she did yes. really well in that role. She She's fantastic. And you know what? Every time I watch this movie, I think, who is she? Because, like, I swear I've seen her in stuff. But I look her up. Um, Her name is Berenice Marlowe. And I've I've never seen her in anything else. But she, she, she reminds me of someone. Is she French? I think so. I'm looking her up right now. She is French. Yes. They love a French girl, don't they? Eva Green and... Actually, I think the the woman who was in um, Quantum of Solace is French, but the um, Olga 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 what's her face from Quantum of Solace is like French, but of a heritage somewhere else. But like she's French speaking. I love French girls in the Daniel Craig era because I think Leah Sadu also French. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I had not picked this up before, but yeah, they've got a real French fetish. Well, they're renowned to be the most beautiful women in the world. Yeah, true. Damn them. Yeah. Damn those French women in there. Paris. Impeccable red lipstick and perfectly manicured nails and sharply pressed Chanel suits. Damn them. <laughs> if you are a French lady, I am just jealous. Please don't take this as any kind of actual hate. It's uh, pure jealousy. Yeah, I, I think that Berenice did a great job in kind of going from this uber confident. I know everything. Apparently she based a lot of her visuals, I guess, or she was inspired by Xenia on a top in right. okay. Goldeneye, which makes absolute sense because that whole casino scene, she's just acting with a cigarette. Like she's doing yes. some yeah, mighty fine. A lot of cigarette fine, acting. A lot of cigarette acting. And she's got this particular type of slow burning cigarette. I don't know if you noticed where it's not like a Winnie Blue with the tacky you know, <laughs> filter on the back. You know, she hasn't just pulled it out from under the sleeve of her beautiful dress. You know, just cracked open a big lighter and etc. She's she's a class act, so she's got this slow burning kind of cigarillo that you know lets off a very fine smoke, and she's got these long talon nails and is just looking very cool and French and continental. And it's that wonderful thing too, where you think that she's in charge, and then it turns out, oh no 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 no, there's a much scarier spider yeah. waiting for for Bond. Yeah, I didn't pick out that she was in charge in charge. No. But I definitely, she definitely comes across initially as like, I'm in charge of this situation. And then Bond just does his best Sherlock Holmes impression and goes, ah, the cut of your gown indicates and the the, th- <laughs> the beretta you have strapped to your thigh and the tattoo on your wrist indicates that you were rescued from the sex trade. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Like elementary, my dear Severine. <laughs> he, he, well, he's smarter than, than Q in this. He's incredible. He, he's the one who spots a, a, a like a key code for the hacked system and says, use use that as the key code. Clearly, he's been doing some internet. I, I, I agree, but I, I do agree, but but I love that the only reason that he does that in that scene is because they were like, well, we can't just have Bond sit and watch them play with computers for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> he needs to be involved, so get him in there. 
he can't just do what I would do in that situation, which is I'm look, I'm out, guys. I don't, can you fix whatever this yeah, is? Let me let me know when you've got it sorted, and then we'll get up, we'll get on with it. I hit Control Alt Delete. I thought that would help reboot, <laughs> but now I'm getting a beach ball of death. I don't know what's happening. I do love that Ben Wishaw is doing that super genius fast typing. Yes, you know where he's yes. just you just see his fingers moving over the keyboard like where is he going? Pan out, pan across pan out the, you know i love i love i love that shtick it's very good it was it was right on the end of like that sort of shtick in movies you don't really get that too much anymore i don't think don't right you? on the end of the hacker stuff oh okay surely they must have have still bits and pieces I feel, of people. i feel like you don't get exactly that sort of thing anymore where they're like he's hacking the mainframe yeah <laughs> There's a lot of hacking in this film, that's for sure. <laughs> the last thing on my list, or the second last thing, uh, this movie looks incredible. I think this might be the best looking Bond film. It's beautifully shot. Absolutely beautiful. Roger Deakins, obviously, was the cinematographer on this one and uh, just amazing. Is he Australian? Uh, he is English, oh. um, but he is very much celebrated. He's done a whole bunch of movies. Mm. Fargo, Shawshank Redemption, Beautiful Mind, uh, Sicaro, Blade Runner 2049, 1917, whole bunch of different movies. Uh, uh, Saving Private Ryan, Seven. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, he is really just like just it. incredible. Uh, he's an amazing cinematographer, and this movie looks incredible. It's shot beautifully. That scene at the beginning on top of the rooftops of Turkey, that was yeah. That was one of the best. You know, that the whole writing on that looked incredible. Mm. Yeah, the, the stunt work in this movie is is really really good, and I think I think a little bit of that. It's weird because that they finally found a way to sort of integrate some CGI with the actual stunt work because I think not all of that was done practically but they cut it together and a lot of the actual stunts were they rode bikes around but I think where they the bits where they were sort of jumping huge distances were a bit assisted but you can't tell which is really good they finally I, figured out how to do that I know that they replaced a lot of the sort of the roofs that they drove along on their motorbikes in that pre-credit sequence I know that they replaced the actual originals with replicas that are stronger and sturdier that they wouldn't obviously damage and then they put the regular ones back because I think they've got a bit of criticism. People were like, oh, you're destroying this ancient part of Istanbul. I'm like, no, we weren't really. <laughs> yeah, we, we weren't. It's fine. I think it's they fine, even guys. did some filming in a different city in Turkey to stand in for Istanbul. So, And then it has that great um, – because that whole opening chase is, is fantastic. It's classic. Yeah. And yeah. I love like this the scene with the earth mover where he rips the back of the train off, jumps on and then like adjusts his cuffs. Yes. Ah, the best. And this is what I mean. I think there are nods in this film to previous Bond films that not overt like Die Another Day. So for example, that cuff thing. I mean, that's for sure a, just a Bond thing, but also it reminds me so much of Pierce Brosnan adjusting the tie in the tank mm, in yes, GoldenEye. absolutely. <laughs> you know, in the middle of this wreck and he just sort of adjusts the tank, keeps going. Like Bond, you know, is, falls it Because he's been shot at this point too. Like he's been shot with... Uh, sure. Yeah. When, he's, when he's moving the, the earth mover around, he gets shot with... If they're like little bits of bullets or something that he pulls it like he cuts out of himself when he's back at <laughs> yeah shrapnel. yeah shrapnel so he's like injured and he just like boom spider-man kind of crashes into this train and just up he gets adjust the cuff move on but then fighting on top of the train that's very roger moore in mm. of all films octopussy <laughs> <laughs> 
So there's lots of, I mean, I guess there's only so much you can do with various transport and chases and things like that. But I <laughs> I do feel like there's a few, and there's in the score, which was done by a different chap, I think his name is Thomas Newman, who'd worked a lot with Sam Mendes. Um, so David Arnold, who'd done the last few, was stood aside. Apparently they said, oh, no, he's working on the London Olympics, so he's busy doing that. And he was like, I could have still done the Bond film, but okay. Uh, <laughs> and there's lots of weird kind of Roger Moore some of the the tones that they use in the movie, like the, it's really hard to describe when I'm not a music person and I don't know exactly the, the phrasing to use, but there's just these sort of thematic elements to the music, maybe leap motifs, that kind of thing that just feel a bit Roger Mori, just feel a little, a little bit more vintage Bond, but that could just be me reading into things. But I definitely feel like there were homages to the 50 years of Bond without expressly saying we're doing 50 years. And also because of the do you want an exploding pen that Q says to Bond, <laughs> Yeah. you know, and obviously bringing out the DB5, Aston Martin, which has the same number plates yes. as in Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. I did clock that this time. Yeah. And, and Daniel Craig looked genuinely devastated when it blew up. I know yeah. that they, they treat it like, like a death of a character. Yeah. Well, <laughs> hey. It, like when you think about Bond and what Bond has, you think vodka That's martinis, it. Walter PPKs, Aston Martin DB, you know, there's key Bond things that make the character and it's nice to see a lot of them kind of coming back and returning in, in this film. Are you done with your list? There's one more thing and that is that this movie has a very obvious Sean Connery shaped hole in it. Ah. Uh, so there is a there is a, a character, a groundskeeper at Skyfall called Kincaid, and he is very, very obviously supposed to be Sean Connery. Now, apparently, you, you probably know this. I don't know whether you guys know this story or not, but, but they did approach Sean Connery and sort of say, would you like to come back? And apparently he politely declined. And I don't know whether I would have liked to have seen him or not. I read in my research that they thought about approaching him and then thought that it might be just too, it would take people too much out of the story if they did have him there, that it would be too meta, too too much. One of those stories is correct, I guess. They either, yes. they definitely, yes. there was thought that, should we get Sean Connery, who had, re- had he'd retired from film? Because he, he had he... definitely well and truly retired by this stage. He yeah. Yeah, he did the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and that went balls up. And so he went, well, that's <laughs> it. I'm I'm done with making films. The whole business has gone crazy. I don't understand it anymore. I'm going to go live in Scotland or Spain or somewhere. That's my Sean Connery. Just been working on that, just just for you guys. Uh, so I think it would have taken me out of the story for sure. I would just have been like, oh my god, it's one Bond, and then the other Bond, and then the and then one Bond, and the other Bond. I feel like it would have taken. I, me I, out I do of the too. Story. I I do think it would have been weird. Although, like the way that character sort of sits in the in the movie, it's kind of almost weird that it's not Sean Connery. That's right. Because the the movie's kind of like building up to a, a reveal, and he kind of comes out of the shadows, and then it's just uh, some guy, and yeah. it's like, oh, well, it's okay. Albert Finney. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah, I know, but but you know, like he he's not linked to the to the the franchise like Sean Connery is. No, that's true, and it would have been such a like gasp moment. But I feel like that would have gotten criticism. I feel like critics would have gone stunt casting. What were oh, you thinking? Absolutely, it would it would have one hundred percent been stunt casting. But I mean, you know, you're right. It probably would have detracted from the back end of the film, which I, is really really good. I think he would have done a better job at the "Welcome to Scotland" line. <laughs> you know, fires two bullets or whatever it was with a Sean off, Sean off, a Sean off, a well, Sean Connery if he, off. If, if, if Sean Connery fires a shotgun, it's a Sean off shotgun. It's a Sean off shotgun. <laughs> 
<laughs> a shorn off Sean. <laughs> That's too funny. And I, why am I laughing so much at it? And he does the welcome to Scotland. Because Albert Finney is English. He's not actually Scottish. Whereas I feel like Sean Connery would have taken that on as a real badge of pride. Oh, yeah. Look, the other thing that I will say, and I'm sure we will talk about this, and I've got it in my notes, and why not say up, is, is that that last finale, that climax, it's the Home Alone ending. It is, it is the Home Alone ending. I mean, it's great, but it's also a bit Home Alone. So if you were going to introduce Sean Connery into the kind of silly home, it either would have suited it perfectly or maybe tipped it over the edge into <laughs> farcical. See, I, it could have really disturbed the balance, I think. Like, I think it was for the best that he's not there because also you might then be thinking, oh, look, it's Sean Connery and, oh, I, yeah, I'm not making a lot of sense, am I? Yeah, I'm kind of either way on it. I don't know, you know. I mean, I just, I'm sentiment because it was so sentimental. So I don't know whether it would have been a detriment to have him. Yeah, I kind of like that sort of thing. So I, I think it would have been good to have him. But, you know, Albert. Oh, but Finney's no slouch. I mean, he's not connected to James Bond. He's connected to Agatha Christie. For <laughs> sure. True. And he was in Tom Jones back in the 60s and a whole bunch of stuff. And also this was his final film. I think he died a few years later. And so this is his final feature film. So what a one to go out on. Yeah. But as we've as we've said, like, you know, so Sean Connery's basically retired from acting. So his last his last feature film was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. How nice would it be to actually sort of fill that out and say his last film is Skyfall? Yeah. Yeah. In Scotland, you know, it kind of explains the Scottish accent at the beginning. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because they filmed the parts where they are driving into Scotland at Glencoe, that very famous, beautiful Glen, as it's called. The, the you know, you see the mountains and the mist, and and they stop, and it's Bond just kind of looking out at this beautiful. I mean, the fact that there's not busloads of tourists just driving past is somewhat unbelievable because it's one of the most visited places in Scotland, <laughs> um, Glencoe. But they actually reconstructed the old house, the Skyfold Manor, closer to London. So it's that wasn't actually filmed in, in Scotland. Oh, wow. It was in Surrey somewhere, yeah. Well, I was actually thinking about that because when they had the house there, I was wondering to myself, so they just sold it, right, and they just blew it up. So the owners aren't going to be... <laughs> <laughs> there's a great sketch Stu that we should write just of the owners coming in <laughs> well darling I'm so excited about finally taking possession of our beautiful Scottish manor I've always wanted to, to live in Scotland oh it's going to be beautiful here in the summertime with the heather and the spring and the and the haggis roaming wild and free and the mountain let me just take a sip of my tea as we round the corner ah <laughs> uh, what a little <laughs> what Goodness gracious! What happened to our beautiful new home? And what's this helicopter carcass on the lawn? Yeah. <laughs> Why is there the charred skull of an Aston Martin DB5 quietly smoking here in the front yard? It is very fun to think about that. Because <laughs> Kincaid doesn't seem to give a shit that they're, you know, this new owners. He's just like, yep, let's defend the property. It's very sweet. I guess Silver just tracks them down because he's clever. Well, they I, I think they, they uh, deliberately led him there, didn't they? That they, they said that they were leaving like a trail of digital breadcrumbs to, to lead him to, to uh, Skyfall. I thought that they were doing a trail of digital breadcrumbs to try and throw him off. 
to like keep him away for as long as possible because Q is saying it's a really fine line we have to make sure that it looks genuine enough that he'll fall for it but not be so um, he, isn't that the point so so that so that he thinks that they're just being sloppy but they're leading him to somewhere on their terms okay I'm gonna need to just double check this <laughs> I can't help you. I, I don't remember the... Uh, yeah. the oh, instructing Q and Bill Tanner to leave an electronic trail for Silver to follow. But why would he Why would he go there then? Because then he controls... He's on He's on solid ground. He's on his home turf. He can, he, he can see him coming. But yes. he doesn't have anything. He's got a house full of uh, Home Alone tricks. <laughs> and Kincaid, well, Kincaid wasn't meant to sell all the guns. I was about to say, yeah, Kincaid... Like, as far as Bond knew, he had an armory at this house. That is true, yeah. But then he says, oh, no, we couldn't sell your father's old hunting rifle. It's like, oh, but you sold all the rest then. Surely my father owned those as well. <laughs> anyway, let's get on with my list because I've got stuff and then we can continue through the film because there's, there's, there's stuff I want to say. First of all, I just really need to say to you both, Daniel Craig spends so much time in this film just standing really firmly with, like, his legs posed in such a way that his testicles are the size of <laughs> And that he must stand with this kind of very spread, eagled stance <laughs> to allow, you know, the, the magical penis and the and the and the goodness what? around it to kind of really, I don't know, air out or something. I mean, I know he's in Tom Ford suits now, which are those really, you know, very finely cut, very tight, very crisp, clingy suits. So maybe it's just a little bit tight in the crotch area, so he's sort of forced to stand. <laughs> There's an episode of Blackadder where Hugh Laurie is Prince George and he's hired some actors to teach him how to deliver a speech and they get him to take up a hero's stance, which is kind of standing with your crotch pointed outwards and your nipples out. And he's standing, Daniel Craig is standing like that through the whole film. It almost be- became funny to me to watch it where it's like, oh, there's James Bond just looking out on the horizon quietly <laughs> with his crotch pointed towards due north. Entering every room crotch first. That's right. Look, and I don't hate that. I just, I don't want to, I don't want it to seem like I'm not interested in Daniel Craig's crotch because clearly I am. But it's just, it's really so, it's such a repeated image in this film. It's like almost every second time you see Daniel Craig, he's standing. And every other time you see him, he's just doing that run he does, that kind of Terminator. Yeah. Pumping arms, just (laughs) standing, running. They're the two Daniel Craig. He's either standing completely still or running at full tilt. That's right. There's no middle ground. (laughs) He's a very serious Bond, isn't he? He's very brooding. There's no one, like, quite like him, I don't think. And and I think part of it is because he seems to have put a lot more effort into his physique, like, you know, with all the work he's been And I think he's probably a bit hangry, if you know what I mean, (laughs) hungry at the same time. Like, he looks hangry. Yeah. He's he's definitely, like, on some sort of keto diet. He hasn't had bread in months. (laughs) Except he's been in Mexico somewhere doing drinking yes, games yeah, with Scorpion. Oh, yeah, with the Scorpion, yeah. And also some product placement Heinekens. That's the... Yes. A lot of people drink Heineken beer from the bottle in this film. <laughs> you just, M gets into the DB5. Oh, why is there a Heineken here? Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, so, so Daniel Craig's stance was something that just kept repeatedly coming up to me. I'm going to say, how did he survive that shot and fall in the pre-credit sequence? Pre-credit? Pre-credit sequence. He's fighting with Patrice on the top of a train. He's already been injured and Moneypenny is ordered by M to take the shot. She shoots Bond because, you know, it turns out she's very clumsy and inept. 
and he falls off the train, off a viaduct, down into the water, and then down a waterfall. Like, they couldn't just have him go into water. He had to then be swept down a conveniently placed waterfall. (laughs) And then it just goes into the Adele song, and then he turns up in Mexico playing drinking games with with scorpions. How, How... I know he's. They, they know. just had a, a real a, 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 an image with scene missing. Yes. Shows up in Mexico. <laughs> I know he's Bond. I love Bond. He's a superhero. I get it. I know that it's just a. Oh, of course Bond won't be dead. But they make it look like, like all the solemnity and then the 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 beautiful opening title sequence where you see this hand come up and like drag his body down. So all the movie is called Skyfall. There's a lot of Bond just being submerged in water. At various points. I remember when I first saw it, I would have liked to have seen how he survived that. I guess it was his Reichenbach Falls moment. You never see Sherlock Holmes survive the Reichenbach duet. Duet? Duel with Moriarty. Gosh, wouldn't that be great? New idea, Stu. Write it down. The Reichenbach duet. Holmes and Moriarty singing together at last. I'm writing that down. That's That's got to be something where I can back mm-hmm. you There's a moment at Raul Silver's secret hideaway island, which I think was the real place, or at least was based on the real place, Hashima Island off Japan, oh. which was a real island where all these people worked and then it got evacuated mm. and it just kind of fell to pieces, but it's still like this island city that's abandoned and creepy. Um, but there's a, there's a moment after that fantastic scene which I want to talk about where Raul kind of introduces himself and they do the touchy-feely stuff. And he goes, I'll oh, come out here. I want to show you something. They walk out into the sunshine and there's like a full frame shot of Bond just putting on his sunglasses. Yeah. Like <laughs> aviator style sunglasses. I was like, when that happened, that's just product placement, surely. Also, he was wearing a tuxedo because he was out at night. Why would he be carrying sunglasses on him? Well, he was the only one wearing sunglasses too. I noticed, you know, Javier didn't have his. No. It was funny to me to see. It's like, well, Bond's just now got to put on these very cool shades. What else do I want to talk about? All right. I do want to say I love Q, Ben Wishaw. He's great. Very sassy. Ha, ha, ha. He's a millennial or younger. Not sure. It's a nice update because that's the sort of guy who would be a Q like yes. today. Yes. That bit where he says, oh, he's hacking into these. Only a few people can program this sort of interfering algorithm or whatever it is. And he's like, can you program them? And he's like, I invented them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so smug. I love the fact that when they meet, they meet in the National Gallery and they're sitting in front of the Fighting Temeraire. The painting mm. is the Fighting Temeraire by Turner. And I love that painting because it's ostensibly of this, you know, great warship as he as he speaks to. He says it's the great warship being pulled off for scrap. And so it's kind of looking like it's going into the sunset, like is the sun setting on the British Empire kind of thing. But you could also interpret it as a sunrise, that it's being sort of pulled off at, at the a new era. So again, a bit of metatextual commentary on Bond old and new. Indeed. That's what I thought anyway. That's my contribute to art history 101. <laughs> but I, I love that Turner painting. It's a really it's a really lovely one. Apparently they shot that scene at night when the gallery was closed to the public because if you can imagine yeah. <laughs> trying to shoot while one of the most popular, you know, tourist attractions in London, <laughs> there's Daniel Craig turns up. It would be busy. I also really loved Voldemort in this film. <laughs> uh, just I saw looking- your tweet. Look, yes, I did. I did tweet uh, after I watched this film. Got to say, Ray Fiennes, quite hot. 
he looks really good in this movie. Like he looks kind of dashing and capable and refined and. Well, he's handsome uh, when he has a nose. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'll have you know that the 16th century astronomer Tycho Brahe may not have had a nose, but he was still a good-looking man. What an insanely deep pull. Oh, yeah, I was just thinking the same. You know why, though? Because that's a specific niche joke for Greg from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast, who, if I played my cards right, is currently laughing because he recognises that reference. <laughs> that's literally it. It's how I communicate with Greg, just in a, a, a ye olde times astronomer references. <laughs> I've just got to find something to make a Galileo pun about now and we'll be set. Um, but, yeah, no, Taiho Brahe lost his nose in a duel and so wore, like, a silver nose for, like, fancy occasions. He'd bring out the silver nose. Good-looking man, mm. even with the silver nose. So let's not hate on people with no nose. Why did I get stuck in this conversational loop? I don't know. I agree. Ray Fiennes looks great and he's – He's a really interesting character because you kind of see him first as an uh, as an antagonist to M. He's saying you need to resign. You're a bit past it. Mm. You know that old and busted spy you have. You're also old and busted. Mm. <laughs> and Bond doesn't trust him initially because he doesn't think he's a, he thinks he's a bureaucrat that he hasn't been in the field, even though he finds out that he was stationed in Ireland and was an SAS officer and was captured by the IRA. You know, I don't want to get too political about the situation in Northern Ireland and the troubles. But that would have been some shit, you know? That, there would that, have been that some, would not have been pleasant for him. Would not have been pleasant for him. But conversely, from the other side, English probably shouldn't be in Northern Ireland. Just going to say. Not getting political. <laughs> but just going to say. <laughs> there's, no, there's no good guys. But also, historical colonisation of Northern Ireland, I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> just got to represent. I, I, it's very amazing that you brought that up in this. But yes, that's. <laughs> I don't want anyone to Daniel Gay Lewis you or something, you know, name of the father. Oh, Alison, no, no, you, you have no idea. She, uh, Natalie's whole thing is that she just dances up to the line of being cancelled every time we podcast. <laughs> I don't think it's wrong to say that the English were in Ireland and that caused problems. It, it is a relatively uncontroversial opinion, <laughs> I know, yes, but, you know. <laughs> so, look, IRA, bunch of bad dudes, not going to deny that, but, you know. Takes two to tango is what I'm what I'm saying is I'm not political but just you know context given yeah. that this film is so soaked in you know Englishness Bond even says at one point when they say country he says England he doesn't say United Kingdom or Britain he says England yeah. and that probably would have annoyed some people <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah this film is kind of soaked in Union flag imagery you know the coffins of the people who were blown up in MI6. Uh, M's bulldog, her little Winston Churchill bulldog with the Union flag. Now, now that was that was um, a creation of this movie, wasn't it? We hadn't yeah. seen that before. Yeah, no, that's this that's totally. Yeah, we need to show M having some sort of quirky thing that she can then pass on to Bond as a <laughs> as a joke or as a message. But yes, I really enjoyed Ray Fiennes. I loved his reveal as the new M. I, I think that was such a fun way to end the film. And what I wanted to say is backing up to, I think, what you were saying earlier, Alison, about how this film goes back a bit and, you know, has a lot of references to the older era, is did you notice the difference between Judy Dench's office at the start of the film and Mallory's office as M at the end of the film? Mm-hmm. 
Yes. So Judy Dench is this great big office at the top of the MI6 building. It's all plugged in with screens and windows and voice activated everything. And then it's bombed. They all go down under London, subterranean London headquarters with passages and tunnels and whatnot. And then by the end, when he goes in to see M, he goes through the padded door. Yes. Yes, I know. Like a little ante room where Money Penny is. There's a hat rack or a coat rack. And then he goes through the padded door and into the sort of the ye olde style office of the Bernard Lee M from the earlier films. Yes. It's just taking that full circle with that that styling. So, and I loved his reveal as as M. Um, yeah, I, I, and the thing is, like when when I first watched that in the cinema, I recognized what they were doing. I was like, oh, that that's cute. I like I like what they're doing there. But watching it in this rewatch it hits so much harder because like we're relatively close but but having said that we're 23 films in so the original Bernard Lee M's are actually a little bit in the past for us again now but they're, they're right at the front of my mind so bringing it back like that had this real frisson of you know I don't even know the word for it I guess like it's not nostalgia because it's only like you know two months old but All right. like just sort of just sort of that, that real oh I get that yeah that's that's cool. I can't remember if I noticed it at the time I'd like to think I noticed that door but I think I was probably more angry about the whole money penny situation. Should I talk? <laughs> should I talk to the money penny situation? Let, let's let's deal I, with the money penny of it all. So I like this film. I like this film a lot, but th- the money penny situation frustrates me on a level. It's like fingers on a chalkboard <laughs> level of frustration. So we see Naomi Harris being a field agent in the pre-credits. Great. I mean, like, can we can we just address the fact that like Naomi Harris as money penny? Great. Fantastic. Do you think or not? I don't know if it's a case of her being a little weak or if she was underserved by some of the writing. See, watching it, for for me anyway, watching it with the knowledge that she is Moneypenny, all that cute flirting that they're doing, it's absolutely Bond and Moneypenny for me. I get it. Yeah, but that's because you know that she's Moneypenny. Well, sure. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And my point is all of that really sexy cutthroat shaving stuff like, there's no way that they wouldn't have boned. Yeah. <laughs> I I agree because it was very symbolic with the fireworks straight after. Even though Bond's on the boat by that stage, I, oh, yeah. I thought that that was very symbolic. Exactly. I feel like by not showing them explicitly in bed together, they're leaving themselves just enough wiggle room to retcon if they need to. Because, yeah, you're right. I mean, like, like she's shaving him, for God's sake, and it's... Like that's such an intimate like gesture, and then you and you're right, Alison. Like like they they cut to fireworks, which is very cinematic, and the, the implication is there, but we never actually see any sort of action go down. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's definitely left to our imagination, and they're leaving themselves just a little bit of wiggle room to leave that sort of money penny bond interplay intact. I don't know. It's I think they they ride the line. I, I quite like it, but it, but you're right. Like like it does mean that their entire flirtation. If they if they definitely did bone, like it's definitely it colors everything that comes afterwards. Yeah, and well, okay. So what I hate the most about it, and I, I do want to talk to the whole kind of relationship and how they set her up. So they set her up in the pre-credit sequence as the person who shoots Bond. Now she's ordered to take the shot. She says that it's not going to be clean. M tells her to do it anyway, and she shoots Bond. And then when he turns up alive. She's a little bit kind of sheepish that she did that, but there's no real sense of, 
oh gosh, I almost killed you. Or there's a bit of light flirtation. She says, I'm here to help with the transition and then I'll go back out into the field. And he's like, are you sure? It's not for everyone. So it's, <laughs> it feels like this weird kind of gaslighting treatment of her. And he says it a couple of times, like, I, I, I feel safer. I think that's the one at the end when she says, oh, no, you're right. It's not for everyone. He goes, oh, if it helps, I feel safer. But there's this odd feeling that, and then she goes into the field anyway. She gets sent to Macau to shave him for sacrifice <laughs> um, because Q is scared of flying apparently. And as he says, M already told me about the information that she has told him. So why are you here? And that's never really resolved. And then at the very end, he's standing on the roof of MI6, the new MI6 or whatever it is, looking out over London, union flags waving in the breeze. He's doing his stance. <laughs> she brings him the bulldog. The first thing she says to him is she looks out and goes, wow, I didn't even know you could come up here. It's just the clunkiest dialogue that she gets given. And that's apparently in some of the reviews, critics sort of singled her out as feeling a bit awkward. And I don't know if that's Naomi Harris's fault. I feel like there was just to get to this fun reveal that she's money penny. They have to kind of do all these really awkward things, including just never naming her. Yeah, and, and it's insane that she had never introduced herself to Bond. And that's like, the thing. He, he walks in. They walk back inside after she's given him the bulldog. Not a euphemism. And <laughs> and then he says, you know, we've never been formally introduced. And she goes, oh, well, I'm Eve. Eve, money penny, looks oh. down, camera, winks. And it's like... <laughs> You were in the field together <laughs> in a high-pressure situation where you need to talk to each other over earphones. This is before the opening credits. Mm. They're in the field together. At least why not just call her Eve or yeah. Agent Agent 12 or, like, a code name that yeah. she can be called. And then at the end he can be like, I've just been th like, there's so many different ways that you could do, rather than that totally, really yeah. clunky, we've never been formally introduced. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> it's insane. Here's my situation. He Like, she's Agent Eve or she's Agent 12 and she says, I'm here, I'm going to be the new M secretary. And he picks up her name, like a little plaque on her name. Her, what do you call it? A name. Uh, a, a, a name plaque? <laughs> a, name, a name plaque. You know, you have on your desk and it might say, you know, so-and-so head of sales or whatever. And he just picks it up, looks at it and go, oh, I think we'll have fun, Miss Moneypenny. Like you see the camera shoots, it goes Miss Moneypenny and says, I think we'll have fun, Miss Moneypenny, or something like that, you know, like mm. we'll, we're in for some good times, Miss Moneypenny, or something like that. Like it doesn't have to be this weird where she goes, I'm Eve, Eve Moneypenny. Oh. <laughs> because the other thing is M is the fun reveal. That's the final reveal is he goes yeah. in and sees the new M. They didn't need to have this money penny thing. I just feel like it was so much work to try and set it up and the payoff just makes me frustrated. It didn't make me happy. <laughs> it, made, it just made me go, why are you hiding? Because that's the other way you could do it is just have her be money penny and have them have this flirtatious relationship. Sure. And she and because the thing about Moneypenny is she likes Bond more than he likes her. Mm. I mean they they kind of have this lovely affection for each other, but he never he never goes there. But where she's the one who's constantly like, "Let's go have sex, James." Not in those words, but yeah. pretty much. Well, pretty much those words, yeah. <laughs> hey, James, why don't I take off all my clothes? <laughs> Whereas they have this kind of cute flirty banter, and he does, that's where Daniel Craig does the most of his smiling in this film is after they have a bit of banter. He'll kind of do that lovely smile that he has. 
which you saw a lot in Casino Royale whenever he sort of spoke to Vespa. He had that lovely smile. Mm. Quantum of Solace, I don't think you saw it at all. (laughs) (laughs) It's just he had no time for smiling in Quantum of Solace. But it was nice to see that back, and it was sort of that friendly banter. So why not just set her up as as Moneypenny? Or, or not, but just give her a name. It was so weird that she's never named by anyone. Am I insane for thinking no, this? No, 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 you're not. It's, it's crazy that she, that they haven't, I mean, it's done purely for that reveal. That That's the only reason that it's oh. there and it doesn't need to be. It could have been, it could have been a fun runner throughout the movie. And you're right, because as, as I said, like knowing that she's Moneypenny, there's lots of really cool little moments between them where they have that flirtatious banter going on that just kind of doesn't, that it plays so much differently when you know she's Moneypenny. Where when you watch it on the first watch, I wasn't clocking that, I wonder if this is Moneypenny. Like, like that wasn't even in the front of my mind. I was just like, oh, this is a new character they've created. Mm. Well, apparently there were rumours going around that she was playing Moneypenny and she was denying it, going, oh, no, I'm playing a, a field agent. Yes. Yeah, well, well, exactly. Yeah, she wasn't and- lying. And it, it's not lying, but it's like, why not just say, oh, she's going to be Money Penny? And then you see kind of the origin of Money Penny. Like if they're yeah, doing the exactly, Bond origin yeah. and all the things falling into place, why not go, oh, Money Penny was a field agent who just was not. And, and the thing is, she was pretty capable. She kept that in the pre-credit sequence. She kept her four-wheel drive burning alongside that train next to Bond. Mm. Like she was right there with him. But, you know, M had to keep saying, get after him kind of thing. But for mm. God's sake, it... I almost kind of like the fact that she was someone in the field who was acting not like a superhero. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But I, I have a bit of a problem with her being not a serious romantic interest for Bond because he never has, I guess, well, except for Vesper and, and Tracy, has a, a serious, they're all, you know, sort of sporadic. But I, I always thought that it was a bit of an unrequited love of money pennies. Yes. And, that he wouldn't actually like a you know like a um a best friend's sister he wouldn't actually go there and so it was i don't know i mean i for me that i don't think i quite have the level of anger that you have Matt. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but very few people um, do <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think from that perspective, that whole implication that they got, you know, they had sex because yeah, it's not meant to be like that. But I just, I just, Money Penny's not. She's meant to be more of a, you know. I mean, you saw Money Penny crying when he married Tracy and things yeah. like that. And, and yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, that's probably my only thing with Money Penny. It's a fair point. And I, I can't remember what she does in Spectre now either, so I'll be really interested to see how they depict her and how they, you know, whether the relationship stays the same or changes. What I will say is, though, Naomi Harris, guns of steel. <laughs> like Money, money Penny is shape. not out of the field because she's not, you know, incredibly freaking fit. <laughs> I yeah, I just I feel like I don't know whether I don't like Naomi Harris's performance as much as it's not that I don't think she's a bad actor. I just don't feel like that's the best performance, but I think it's because of the way the character was written. I think it, that it's awkward because of how they create that character and 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 her arc through the film just kind of comes off awkward to me. But I don't think that's because she's a bad actor. I think it's I'm just repeating myself now. I just <laughs> yeah, she could be a bit more plain too. I'm sorry, Naomi Harris is smoking hot. You know. Well, exactly. That's the other thing. Money Penny's not supposed to be a, a Bond girl, is she? She's yeah. In, in she's the Money Penny. She's Money Penny. That's right. She's in a class all her own. That's right. Other things I wanted to mention. Yeah, Judy Dench 
kind of being like the second most featured character in this film, possibly. Yeah, she's a co-lead. She's in it more than Silver. Oh, absolutely. He doesn't come into it until halfway through. It's mm. an hour ten before he comes into it. That long, yeah, amazing. And I, I did want to talk about his introductory scene, um, which again is, you know, Roger Deakins on the on the camera and Sam Mendes creating a really good long shot, which is when Bond is tied up on that island and he just comes out of an elevator and you just it's this long continuous shot of Javier Bardem walking towards the camera and the camera is over Daniel Craig's shoulder just watching him closer telling some ridiculous story about rats but he's <laughs> that, that story went on forever it did but that's the whole it it felt proper bond villainy oh it uh, was so good it, it was it was 100 but it was it was one step below uh blofeld's you know i i was raised by turkish immigrants and i was yes. like <laughs> Do, well dr no doing my father was a german missionary my mother was a chinese prostitute um, it's Austin Powersy, you know, it's Dr. Evilly. And and they do kind of make fun of it later when he turns up in the helicopter at the Skyfall Manor house and Bond just goes, he's always got to make an entrance. <laughs> they do kind of refer back to it. But you have to think, like, did he, again, just imagining him, oh, we've Bond's here, Bond's here, getting the giggles and going, oh, I get to do it now. I get to do my big entrance. Okay, okay, just uh, a <laughs> sip of water and uh, uh, just thinking it through, thinking it through, breathe in, breathe out, remember your training, remember your actor's training, and then just coming out and doing the, like, oh, welcome. Do you like my island? My grandmother had an island. Mm, we had rats on it. Let me tell you how we got rid of the rats. We have changed their nature. Mm. And then you kind of want him to almost step back and go, pretty good monologue, right? <laughs> I really nailed that one. He's great. He's so nuts as well. He like is. He really does the whole completely lost his shit in that cell when he took the cyanide pill and realised that M had, you know, left him, you know, like it was. Yes. And you can't help but actually feel sorry for him. I mean, I'm sorry, I feel sorry for him. This is the first time I've ever had sympathy for a Bond villain. That's really interesting because he does, he sells that really well. Uh, Javier, I just really like saying Javier. But he's he's so, such a good actor, and I think they worked a lot together, he and Sam Mendes, to kind of really flesh out the character, particularly well, he, the bit where you see his lack of flesh in his face. Oh, yes, no. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'd be pissed. And, you know, because, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, you talk about um, Bond being an orphan and how uh, M says that orphans make the best agents, mm. and she's the mother figure, and yeah. she was the mother figure for him. I mean, at the end where he... You know, he hugs her basically and puts the the gun against hers, and he so he'll die as well. You know, like it's it's this true despair. Like he was completely betrayed by his mum. Yeah, there's there's a uh, there's a little bit of Norman Bates in Psycho in that whole situation. <laughs> it's a little bit mother mother. Like she's there and she's been shot by accident so she's bleeding out quietly and he realizes this and goes you're hurt you're hurt what have they done to you what have they done to you and it's like it's your goons bro (laughs) (laughs) you've been trying to kill her for days now and now it's like it's almost like he didn't really mean it like like it's almost like he was sort of lashing out but he but the reality of it when he sees that she's bleeding out he he like realizes what he's done i just want my mummy to love me i just want you to love me again mummy I know. It was, and you know, he had the tear that came down, like when he took mm. his teeth out and everything. I mean, it was, it was really, and, and I didn't like that. I didn't like that for a Bond villain because you're not, you know, I just want this megalomaniac psychopath 
but you know that wants the world to be underwater you know like (laughs) (laughs) I want them to be devoid of feelings not overcome with feelings (laughs) yes it was just too much for me and and I just felt very sad for him one other thing I don't know if you noticed is how big Javier Bardem's face is. Oh, yeah. He's got a massive head. He fills the screen. He really does. <laughs> and, like, they, they have him made up very – like, the, the hair and makeup in this makes him look very strange, but he's a very odd-looking man anyway. Like, he's he's handsome, but he's also – he has very unusual features. He can look villainous very easily because he was no country for old men, wasn't he? Yes, yes, he yeah. was, yeah. I, I can't even see because I've seen, like, little clips of it. Or Isn't that the one where he kills people with, like, yeah. a – with a bolt gun, yeah. A bolt gun. Yeah, he just kind of fires it into their heads or something. Yes. I think I saw the trailers and was like, I can't watch that heat. It's too terrifying. Yeah. Well, there's an incredible scene. If you watch nothing else, Snap, it'll be on YouTube. There's a there's a scene of him in a petrol station in, like, rural Texas where he off, like, like he threatens to kill the, the attendant and he offers him, like, a coin toss. And it basically functions as a short film. Like, like it's one of the most incredible scenes I've ever seen in a movie. And it, all it is is just implied tension. Like, it's just just steadily ratcheting tension. And it's just in, insane. Like, like, he is such a magnetic screen presence. And that's, that's him being subdued. That's a very subdued performance in that movie. And so in this one where he sort of brings the flamboyance, he's just taking over the screen. Oh, he's yeah. chewing some furniture. Just like rats chew each other. They have to survive. Or they can work together, and I don't know what he was offering. Yeah, that whole metaphor kind of fell apart when he said, oh, we're the rats, we should. It's almost like he's trying to get James to come to his side. He has a great laugh because he obviously has hacked all the MI6 systems. He knows that Bond actually failed all of his physicals and mental tests to become an agent again. But M approves him anyway because... He's mm. the only one who can do the job, apparently. He says, how much was your marksmanship? He says, 70. And he, he laughs like this. He goes, ha, 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 40. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. It's so weirdly performative. It's this kind of barking laugh. <laughs> and then the other thing that he does, that the character kind of does, is you know how Donald Trump is always, you always see clips of him going like, beep, beep, boop, boop, bop, bop. I don't know why it reminded me of that, but he's constantly, he says, you can choose your own adventures like I do. Would you like to destabilize a multinational by interfering with stocks? <laughs> I, can't, I can't make the sounds, but he's going like, Pop, and, and um, Pop, you know, and done. And he's making all these like onomatopoeic sounds. Yes. It's so tinkly and yeah, it's, it's, uh, I it's think, just I little I think we've found your like ASMR that. triggers, Nat. it's that kind of stuff that just made me go oh he's really finding weirdness he he does it to the the rats too when he's doing his rat monologue he's like the pop 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 the rats will eat each other pop 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 why did i bring that up and it's just stuff i noticed well he's brilliant in it and he's obviously having a, a really good time in this role yeah, the great scene where they kill poor Severin and he gets the scotch and he puts it on her head and he's going, darling, 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 no, stand up straight, stand up straight. It's just her, like so skin-crawlingly awful. Mm. And then Bond shoots and misses and then he just shoots her because the whole point is shoot the glass off her head. So he just shoots her, the glass falls off her head. <laughs> I win. And then Bond has this very, I feel like there's regret there obviously, because he wouldn't shoot her. Bond doesn't like to kill 
innocent people. Not necessarily that she was wholly innocent, but it, she didn't have a chance to defend herself. And he says, it's a waste of good scotch. And then he just, again, kicks everybody in the dick. And it's great. <laughs> that, that scene where he just turns around and starts punching all of Javier's goons was probably oh. my favourite little action sequence in the film. And then when he says, who says I'm alone? And the MI6 choppers come in. It's a lovely moment of, hooray, Bond wins. And he says, I've got my gadget, new gadget from from Q Branch. It's called a radio. <laughs> yes, I like that. That was a great line. And that's, that's a really good Craig pun. Like Craig doesn't really do puns and saucy lines. Quips. But those kinds of like fuck you quips, yeah. he does pretty well. Can we talk about Severine and the somewhat controversial scene in which he sneaks onto her because she – oh, Komodo dragons. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I wondered if you are going to mention those. I love the Komodo dragons because that to me is like proper Bond film when there's a yeah. sadistic animal that, <laughs> you know, cuts a bitch. That's what I want to see in a Bond film. We've had snakes, we've had piranhas, we've had, I don't know, rampant monkeys. I'm sure we that happened. a tiger that he told to go away one time. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And the tiger went away? Well, I think he told it to sit. Sit. Mm. Which apparently is a reference. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> a very topical reference for 1983 England. <laughs> It's held up. But, yeah, just the, the fact that there's this crazy casino with Komodo dragons. Yeah. Yeah, I can buy this. This is a fun This is a fun setup. And then the Komodo dragon just, like, grabs him around the leg and just drags the bad guy into the shadows. I'm not sure if Komodo dragons attack like that, but maybe they yes. do. Yes. And I don't know. I don't know. Yes, I thought about that because, I mean, you sharks and piranhas, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, how? Do they do it? Can't you get away? You know, they, I mean, I know they're very fast, but yeah, anyway, it was, I, you know, we didn't see much more of it, and I, I guess that's a good thing. No, well, he does again. Another Roger Moore kind of tribute is he uses the piranha, uh, sorry, piranha, Komodo dragon as a stepping stone to get sure, out of yes. the pit. Yeah, I hadn't he even does, realized that, but you're right. Yeah, as a crocodile tribute, he kind of jumps on the back and jumps up, and and Money Penny's standing there with uh, his big bag of cash. So because he escaped. Severine had said, all my bodyguards are going to kill you, but if you escape, this is where my boat is. So he sneaks onto her boat. She's having a shower in a very luxurious shower room, and then he turns up nude and just kind of walks into the shower. Uh, Now, this attracted a bit of criticism at the time because the idea that she's an ex-trafficked for sex woman and here's Bond just kind of going, hey, let's have some shower sex. (laughs) Kind of surprise. Um, (laughs) I'm here. She doesn't, I mean, she, she seems, yeah, I think. understand why the stance has to be the stance because you can look down and see, this is why I stand like this. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Stu. No, I was just going to say, it's defanged a bit by the fact that she seems extremely into it. So I think that. Well, this is the thing. And he has essentially said to her that he will help. And and, and in that casino scene where, mm. as Alison said, you know, you can see her hand shaking. She's really terrified. And she's like, you can't kill him, you can't. And he, and what does he say? Usually somebody dies. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you can see her actually get a glimmer of hope, probably for the first time in years, that somebody might be able to help her. I mean, she says she kind of sets him a test. She's like, I'm going to leave and then they're going to kill you. And if you survive, come see me. Yes, but it, it still caused a bit of controversy at the time. I definitely understand what they're saying. Although having said that, this is, as we've seen, far from the most problematic things a Bond <laughs> film has ever done. <laughs> I think people just were surprised by it because, 
you know, the Craig Bonds haven't had any kind of controversy like that. There hasn't been really, even since the Brosnans, there hasn't been anything that's... um, But again, we were sort of into the era of social media by the time this film came out. So maybe it was a, I don't know. But I I do remember it causing a bit of a fuss at the time. And it's really the, oh, you see him briefly with a woman in his Mexico death Mm. drinking party life. And then he sort of has this sex scene with her. And that's about it. So the Daniel Craig films are really... Quite chaste in Bond terms. Yeah, they're very sexless. Considering some of the Roger Moores, he, he, you know, I think we counted like four in A View to a Kill. <laughs> sex with four women. And it's like hinted at more. And anyway, so Daniel Craig is practically virginal. Yet we see him more naked than we do the others. Yes. Which is good. Uh, yeah, there's a great scene of him swimming which is good. <laughs> shirtless, a lot of shirtless. Uh, and, you know, and, and so there should be. I mean, he's worked hard on that body. I know, except he's old and busted, as you keep saying. It's really, <laughs> it's so funny to see, like, oh, Bond, he's past it. And then he's just, like, walks out and ripples quietly. He's, like, he's like the mo- he could rip you in half. He's the most yeah. fit dude you've ever seen. And he literally takes a knife and digs shrapnel out of his <laughs> chest. <laughs> like oh, he's a goddamn oh. Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a dirty flick knife from his pocket. Coolie walks up to a tech and goes, analyze these. <laughs> and it's like, you'd be passing out from loss of blood. Like, has he stitched himself up? Like, what's he, what are you doing, James? You're not going to pass your physical if you start digging into your own pecs. Yeah, it's not as like he's on the run or anything. Like, he doesn't need to actually do it himself. He could have, yeah. you know, gone up to one of the physicians there and said, hey, take care of this. I mean, you know, what's he trying to prove? I would like to talk about the gravestone at the end, and it had obviously Bond's parents in it. It also yes. had M talking about, you know, his parents dying. So anyway, I have a little bit of information from this Bond on Bond book, and it goes into this, which I think is quite interesting. So apparently, Commander James Bond, referring to Bond's naval service and him being a companion in the Order of St. Michael and St. George, was born to Andrew Bond of Glencoe, Scotland, and Monique Delacroix, from the Canton de Vaud, the AUD, in southwest Switzerland. So Swiss, not French. Andrew Bond was a foreign representative of the Vickers Armaments Firm. And Jimmy, because this is how, because um, it's actually in Roger Moore's actually narrating this. Um, so he calls him Jimmy all the time, as you know. And Jimmy travelled with his parents wherever their work took them. When Jimmy was but a mere 11 years of age, both parents were killed in a climbing accident in the Aguilles Rouget, France. So Jimmy was an orphan. Poor Jimmy, says Roger. Bond's early education was undertaken abroad, and so he became fluent in both French and German. After his parents' death, young Jim went to live with his aunt, Miss Charmaine Mian, Mian anyway, Bond, in Pet Bottom, a hamlet near Canterbury, Kent. Then Fleming revealed, age 12, our young hero was entered at Eton College. At age 12, there you go. But after mm. a year... There was some, quote, alleged trouble with one of the boys' maids, and he was transferred to Fetis College, F-E-T-T-E-S, in Edinburgh, where he took part in wrestling, founded a judo class, and graduated early at the age of 17. So there you go. So that was um, a little bit of background there. Founded Um, a judo class. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, founded a judo class. I had heard, I think, the the thing that he was expelled from Eton because he got in trouble with a a woman, but I didn't realise it was when he was 13. (laughs) That is uh, very young, James. Yes. Well, he was very troubled. 
Yeah. In GoldenEye, Alec Trevelyan refers to Bond's parents dying in a climbing accident, which I think is the first time that that is mentioned. Possibly it is in the Fleming books, but I think that's the first time on screen that it's mentioned. But I think this might be the first time that their names are seen on screen. Yeah. They didn't have a year there, you notice that they had the names, but no year. Yes, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> how could you you can't date it yeah because i think i think i did some maths back in the day and you're like oh that means bond would have been you know a kid in the 80s essentially you know like mid 80s or something when the climbing accident happened to be roughly the age that he is in skyfall yeah exactly like it's, it's mm-hmm. this weird rolling time window that the the, the franchise exists in it's, it's one of those things where you realize the next bond is probably going to be younger than me But yeah, it was like when Doctor Who was cast as, uh, Matt Smith was cast as Doctor Who and he was 26, 27 at the time. And it was like, ah. I was just going to say, it is also, this book says that it has been suggested that over the half the world's population has seen at least one of the films. This is in 2012, obviously the 50 year, in what had become the world's longest running movie franchise. And a series in which 007 had got to know over 55 Bond girls had fought over 130 villains and femme fatales, had knocked back numerous vodka martinis, had driven five different models of Aston Martin, had visited over 50 different countries and had been armed with over 100 gadgets and guns, a few of which he even returned intact. (laughs) (laughs) And Q does say that to him in this, when he gives him the gun and the radio, he says, please return the equipment in one piece before he leaves. There's a lovely, I think, uh, lovely look on Daniel Craig's face of that's not going to happen. Well, speaking, as you say, of uh, half the world's population seeing a Bond film, that's excellent. But also, guys, come on, you should see them all. <laughs> <laughs> that's just me. The film broke all sorts of box office records in terms of cash. This is the first Bond film to make over $1 billion. Dollars at the box office. One billion dollars. One billion dollars. And it was made for about 150 to 200 million and it grossed 1.109 billion. So a pretty pretty big hit. Wow. That's a fifth. Apparently, the combined box office of the first 22 films had exceeded five billion dollars. So that's a fifth of the first 22 films. Yeah. The other thing about this film is. And we've talked about this with uh, Tom Selinski about how time can help the Bond films. With GoldenEye, there was that break between the Dalton era and then GoldenEye. It had time to kind of reboot, rethink. With leaving Die Another Day, going to Casino Royale, they had a bit longer time. And then with this one, they had a bit of an extra year or so in the mix because technically this should have been a 2010 film. But with MGM's bankruptcy and everything like that, it became a 2012 film and it it makes sense that they would have gone, let's just push it back and and align it with the 50th anniversary. But that extra time, I think, probably helped them really make everything work better. And we get then the pattern of like a good Daniel Craig, (laughs) a bad Daniel Craig, and now a good Daniel Craig, and it's up to Spectre to (laughs) continue that tradition. Uh, but, yes, this is the, only the 14th film ever to have grossed over $1 billion worldwide. Well, what's interesting is uh, it wasn't the highest-grossing film of the year. 2012, of course, the highest-grossing film, it was number two. So it came close. But by a pretty strong margin, the actual highest-grossing film of 2012 was a little movie you might have heard of called The Avengers. Ah, 
Yeah. That's, that's fair. I mean, Bond is a superhero, but then he doesn't have um, cute Wizard of Oz references. Well, exactly. But but not only that, um, he's kind of <laughs> in a... Avengers, um... Yeah, that's the Avengers. <laughs> I understood that reference. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but um, he's kind of in a bit of a superhero sandwich because it's the Avengers, Skyfall, and then number three is The Dark Knight Rises. Um, <gasps> Which was a terrible w- film. <laughs> Well, yes, I can't argue with that. Uh, Sorry, I don't like that one. It's, it's but uh, when one. We, we might talk about it. Yeah, when we do Raven Bat, because I can't think of another name for the Batman series of uh, Raven on podcasts. <laughs> it wasn't a great year for blockbusters either, because the rest of the top ten was number four, um, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, which is not very good. Number five, Ice Age Continental Drift. Number six, The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part Two. Uh, uh, Number seven, The Amazing Spider-Man, which is one of the uh, bad uh, Andrew, Spider-Man. Andrew Garfield ones? The Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. I've never seen any of the Andrew Garfield ones. I no, totally no, they're, they're that very, They're very bad. Uh, number eight, Madagascar 3, Europe's Most Wanted. Number nine, The Hunger Games. And number ten, Men in Black 3. Which was Men in Black 3? That's the one with uh, Josh Brolin as a young... It's the time-travelling one where they go back and Josh Brolin is a young Tommy Lee Jones. I don't know that I saw that. Yeah, you probably didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I know I didn't see the most recent one with Chris Hemsworth. That was yeah, the... no, 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 that that movie does not exist. Okay, all right. You've used the little, <laughs> you've used the little brain uh, shiny thing. No, I just, I just mean like like do you, until people bring that movie up to me, I forget that it exists, and then oh. you, you'll mention it. I'll be like, oh yeah, Chris Hemsworth made a Men in Black movie. That that totally happened. And then five minutes later, it will have gone from my mind again. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a big year, 2012. Why did they do that thing? I don't know if the Hunger Games did it, but with all those yeah, like Harry, did it too. Harry Potter did it, Twilight did it. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a book per film or a film yes. per book. And then with the final one, they like split them all in two. So you had Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one and two, and then you had Twilight part three, film two. And then I think the Hunger Games did it as well. I think they yes. broke the Hunger final. Games split its final book as well. I mean, is that just pure arrogance on the part of the filmmakers? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like to take a small digression, the, the Hobbit was meant to be directed by Guillermo del Toro. Yes. Um, which would have been incredible. And he was going to make one film. He was going to make a, a film of the book, which meant he would have had to like cut a bunch of stuff, but, but it would have been a, a cohesive single film. Mm. And then he pulled out for various reasons. There was like a writer's strike and, and some other things happened. And basically they had gone far enough into pre-production that Weta in, in New Zealand, which is Peter Jackson's production company, was looking like taking a pretty huge bath on the whole thing. And like obviously everyone was going to everyone was expecting something to come out of this. And he kind of he wasn't going to direct it. And then he kind of looked around and realized he kind of had to direct it. And so suddenly he found himself directing this thing. And as it sort of grew, he was like, okay, well, I haven't really done a lot of prep for this. So I guess we'll do this bit and then we'll do this bit. And then as he's directing the first couple of scenes, he sort of realized, oh, no, I I kind of have to start splitting these things. So, I mean, it basically turned into two films and then three films because he basically hadn't done the prep work because he jumped in at the last minute to sort of helm the ship. And steer it away from the iceberg. I I, I feel very sorry for Peter Jackson because I feel like he made three incredible films in the original Lord of the Rings trilogy mm. that then he's kind of completely undone any cultural cachet he had 
with with any, any subsequent films, including like the the Hobbit trilogy, which was just not very good. I mean, I think the Lord of the Rings still stands. I, I don't hold the Hobbit against. Oh, it does. Peter like, Jackson. don't get me wrong, it, it does. I love those movies, but like. Should we do like Raven of the Rings or something? Lord of the Raven? Because <laughs> I have not seen those films since I saw them in the cinema. Like I have I not have gone back. Them, I've watched them recently. They're very good. They oh really? I, really? I, I love them. I love them. Okay, I'm Hobbit getting movies a... not very good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a strong sense from Stu that he loves the Lord of the Rings films. Is it a surprise to you, Ned? Does this knowledge shock you? Well, I sort of always pick you as more, you know, superheroes and Batman and stuff. But maybe Frodo is just Batman of Middle Earth. That's true. I'm I Frodo. Like <laughs> I'm Frodo. I'm Frodo. Fear me. <laughs> <laughs> they were very good. They were. And you had Ian McKellen. So Ian McKellen. I mean, it, oh, the cast best. was brilliant. The scenery was brilliant. It's actually a bit wasted. Um, we have big screen TVs now, I suppose. But seeing it in the cinema, my gosh, it probably won't be as good second time around now not being in the cinema. Well, they probably re-released them. I think that's what cinemas are doing. Certainly in, in Queensland, given lockdown is, is somewhat less restricted than in other parts of Australia and the world, they're doing a lot of nostalgia screening. So you can go and see actually places in Brisbane are doing the Bond films. Like every week they're doing different Bond films, like double features. So... Obviously, people are very keen to see movies that they already know and love (laughs) because new things are hard. The world's a bit tough right now. The world's a bit tough. Let's watch the thing that we already know that we like and enjoy that. I'm just trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to talk about with uh, Skyfall. I'm sure there is. I think Em kind of had a bit of a death wish. She'd rather die in the field than retire. Um, I just got that impression. I think you're Um, right. And also, did you notice that when she's giving evidence at the trial, she refers to her late husband being a fan of poetry? We had seen her in bed with her, we assume, husband in Casino Royale and you just see him kind of lying in bed and she gets a call from the office and now he's obviously died in the intervening years. Mm. I thought that was interesting that they kind of set her up to have no next of kin, I guess. I mean, if we think back to her first appearance in GoldenEye, she references having children, but we imagine that they're probably grown. So... Yeah, it's interesting that they kind of set her up to have, if she dies, there's not going to be next of kin who'll be really angry. She's not there because they're already dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, overall, though, it's a, it's not a fun film. It's not a fun Bond film. I mean, it's a good Bond film, but it's not, you know, like, it's pretty serious. Like, it's a, a gritty Bond film. Yeah. Are any of the Daniel Craig's fun? <laughs> not really, are they? <laughs> there's fun moments. That's the thing. Like, there's moments where he's flirting with Money Penny, or he makes like little jokes and with uh, Q and stuff like that. Like, there's there's stuff in there that's fun, but but I guess like like the movie itself is not fun in the same way that a Roger Moore Bond is fun. I mean, they're good. Don't get me wrong; they are really good. It's a different era, but yeah, I, I find that they're um so different from the other traditional, but more traditional Bonds. Mm. And I do wonder how they will take the series after Craig leaves, which is just the question now is, do we get another gritty Bond and that becomes Bond I, I now? Hope they, I hope they go full wacky. I hope they go <laughs> crazy. Full Roger Moore. Lean into it. I just would love to see a couple of standalone films because this, this one stands alone. This is the thing. This one stands alone and then it's kind of retconned into Spectre. Yeah. So... I sort of think of this film and try and think of it as a standalone film so it doesn't, it's not kind of coloured 
by what I did not like about Spectre. Um, yes. <laughs> I just thought as we as we move towards wrapping up, I thought I would read you the lines from Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem Ulysses that M reads at the courthouse, which functions as a commentary on Bond as he does his, as I said, he's not standing, he's running, and he's running <laughs> to chase her down to make sure he protects her. And she's saying, we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven. That which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Oh, Captain, my Captain. I did first year British literature at university. <laughs> but she doesn't yield. That's the whole thing, is it? And she seems to make her decisions and owns them. You know, the, the fact that she gave up silver for six other operas to come back. She, you know, um, it's it's interesting. And, and you're just saying, you know, with Bond and, and I guess that connection they both have. Um, and he kind of knows it. And when silver tries to make him feel bad, you know, like, that M deserves this, he doesn't go in for that. No, you definitely get the impression that if, if he was in Silver's place, he would just accept that that's what M had to do, whereas Silver kind of takes it personally. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I can understand that. I think I'd take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question finally. Do you think that Bond is M's favourite? Because as we've talked about in a lot of these films, she is not averse to sending people off to their death. She just wants to do it based on evidence. But is it in fact the case that, that you know, she is Bond's de facto mother figure? There's actually a reference in Quantum of Solace, actually, I think we forgot to mention last week, where Olga, I can't even remember her name. That's how bad I forget the Craig movies. But, uh, yes, the, says he talks about M and he says, is she your mother? And he says, she likes to think so or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so they definitely make reference to it. I think he likes to think so as well. Um, I think for her it's still business more than anything because, you know, it was take the shot, take the shot, knowing full well that and, – and I think, you know, I think he's her favourite though, absolutely, but she still has a job to do and she puts that first. Yeah, I definitely think that they both have that love of queen and country, as Bond says to Silver, that pathetic love of country, and she <laughs> has that too, and I and that's, I think, the symbolism of the – the bulldog is put the love of country first, even if that means doing things off book or uh, not by the book, I should say. I think they share that. Well, it's not distorted. I mean, this is the game they're in. They, they know what they're, the game they're in and they know what it means. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's very much Godfather. It's not, it's not personal, it's business, you know, like this is, is what it is. Oh, goodness me. I, I did enjoy this film, but now comes the question. Where would I rank it? Stu, have you got any thoughts as we move to wrap up and rank this film? Look, I've put, I've put it in my list. I think I'm happy with where it's sitting, although there's there's it, it was inevitable we, we get to this late in the game and there, there's some there's some <laughs> unfortunate placements. But I started at the top and I don't think this is a better film than Casino Royale. I think yeah. Casino Royale is in my number one spot. I think that's a, a nearly perfect film. Goldfinger obviously is untouchable. It's a it's a classic. It's amazing. From Russia with Love is incredible. The Spy Who Loved Me is the best of the Roger Moores and one of my favorite Bond films. It's just wonderful. And, and like we talked about a fun movie. What a fun movie that is. Mm. 
And so then we get down to the interesting spot. So below The Spy Who Loved Me is Goldeneye. And this is a top five Bond movie. This is an incredible movie. I think it's really, really good. I think it's really well made. It's the second best of the Daniel Craig's behind Casino Royale. Um, and, and only because this movie is sort of trying to do a lot more than Casino Royale was doing. And so it feels a bit less focused. Like Casino Royale is just hyper-focused the entire way. It's airtight as a as a movie this movie's trying to do a lot more stuff and so it feels a lot more expansive and i think that that sort of is a little bit to its detriment but overall it's a wonderful film and so i kind of think it has to go top five and that means it, it edges out goldeneye for me i put it in number five spot and goldeneye slips down to number six so wow. i think i think it's in my number five spot but I behind the spy who love me and just above goldeneye I kind of feel betrayed that you've pushed out Goldeneye. <laughs> I do actually kind of feel betrayed. Funnily enough, though, I think we're in a very similar position because oh. I had serious thoughts about ranking this above Casino Royale. Right. I really enjoyed this film, and there are elements to it that I like a lot more. I think that Raul Silva is such a better villain. He's the best villain of the Craig era, just properly nuts, wacky, dramatic OTT and I think he just acts that really well I think there's really good character emotional development that's more fleshed out here than in Casino Royale in some ways I think that Judy Dench's M is really brilliant and that's a huge huge thing and I love the fact that it brings back it even though I hate the money penny thing I <laughs> love it because it brings back in money penny I love Q being brought back I love the Aston Martin Q, yeah it brings back everything brings I love back. the kind of pulling back of some of those historic bond tropes i like the adele song i think i like you know my name better as oh a yeah. Song. yeah for me I, I like that song better i think this film is long i think it's slightly better integrated than casino royale although it is still you could still split it into you know the home alone last third is very <laughs> distinct but i think it's got great great final reveal with m the new m mallory i like ray fines's performance i like tanner as well i never sort of mentioned him but uh, rory kinnear is tanner m's offsider really fun there there's a great montage where craig is working out as bond to pass his physicals and tanner is just sitting next to him in every shot yes. telling him about yeah. the missions and he's just like well we've tracked this here and we tracked this there and Bond is desperately trying to do pull-ups and running and <laughs> and Tanner's like, well, it's not my job to be fit. I'm just going to sit here and brief you. So he's fun. <laughs> I just feel like when I really thought about it, because I thought I could put this film higher than Casino Royale, but the impact of Casino Royale, that kind of game changer that it is, it was more fun in ways and I think the money penny thing screws it for me. I, I find mm. it really frustrating that they made those choices regarding how they would play out her character. And so I think because of that, I'm going to put it below Casino Royale, which puts it into fifth position. <laughs> right, so exactly the <laughs> same spot. List. So I am Goldfinger, The Spy Who Loved Me, Goldeneye, Casino Royale, Skyfall. So two Craig Bonds in the top five is actually more than I would think. And it's really probably because I put Diamonds of Forever <laughs> so high up. Like, I was about to say, so does that edge Diamonds of Forever out yeah. of the top five for you? Diamonds of Forever right. drops out. But now I, I kind of feel bad that I didn't put Dr. No higher because I still really love Dr. No, just that first original and from Russia with Love. So... Look, it is what it is, but two Craig films in my top ten are there probably more because of their competency at filmmaking as opposed 
Well, do you know what I mean? Like Diamonds Are Forever is there because I had like a stupid sentimental connection to it. You know, it's not. Oh, yeah, totally. Me too. I can see the really good stuff from both Casino Royale and Skyfall in terms of the direction. As you say, the cinematography of Roger Deaker in Skyfall is is superb. I even like the OTT shots of Daniel Craig standing on that boat going into the <laughs> casino in Macau doing his stance. Again, yep. doing the stance just with, like, lanterns and he's solo in this boat. You know, it's so OTT, but I kind of love it. So I am going to put it fifth position. And next we'll see if Spectre can be in sixth position. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I'm but, but, going um, to suggest that it won't. Uh, possibly not. Possibly in my not, list but, anyway. Don't know about yours, Stu. You I was going to say, um, Alison, where um, where does this sit for you? Like, well, where, is this a top five Bond for you? Where where would you put it? Ah, uh, No. I do like Daniel Craig. I like him a lot, and I like his movies. His movies are very polished, much more polished than than the earlier Bonds. But I, Casino Royale would be my favourite Daniel Craig over this one, and I think part of it, not not the money penny thing, because Nat, you know, <laughs> you will never let go of that, and I understand. I won't. Uh, it's but, true. It's very funny how you know because I get I get that about different things in in the movies too. <laughs> The thing I liked about Casino Royale, and I, I'm pretty, I, I kind of, I feel like I almost have to segregate the different bonds um, in some respects because they're so different. But the reason I like Casino Royale better than um, Skyfall is because M's the Bond girl, obviously, in that one. But I like the proper Bond girl. I like the tradition. I like the, I mean, yeah, not as many gadgets, true. But I just, I just remember when I saw it, I was just blown away with Casino Royale. It was just so well done mm. um, I think Vespa Lynn's been the best Bond girl we've had in a long time I think she talk about strong and memorable you know like but I'm gonna put Casino Royale ahead of this one yeah Fair enough. is Casino Royale your number one Bond film or do you have another one that, that's no, number one for you it's way too complicated for me to answer in five minutes <laughs> <laughs> I, I take this very seriously. I would have to go through this massive analysis on, <laughs> on why I got there. But I do have the sentimental favourite for your eyes only. Obviously, The Spy Love Me is, is a great bond. I agree with you guys there as um, probably technically the best um, Roger Moore movie and Mush With Love and Goldfinger. This. So, oh, I put them. I mean, I was, I was very on par with Tom for that because I really love From Mush With Love probably more than Goldfinger. Yeah, I think that that Silver is a bit of a throwback to some of those really pompous, wacky is maybe not the right word, but OTT villains. Flamboyant. Flamboyant. Yes, he went there. Vain. He's he's obviously more sadistic, and uh, although Goldfinger's pretty sadistic, to be fair, but he's modernly sadistic, not kind of camp 60s sadistic. He's a throwback to that, I think. So I think that's why I like him. And I think I think Le Chiffre, and we didn't really talk about Mads Mikkelsen as Le Chiffre in the Casino Royale podcast, and he's great. He's really, really good. He's this very angular, analytical, quite scary in his own way, very cold, whereas Raoul Silva is blonde hair, flamboyant. So they, they're very, very different types of villain, but I just I feel like Raoul Silva pips it in terms of a bit more of a classic camp villain. Hmm. Except for being sympathetic, as you know, that was Yeah, and I think I think that's a really good thing to take away from that is is you you do get to see how some people are corrupted or corrupt is maybe not the right idea, but you know, that cyanide pill burnt more than just his face. It, I just yes. have to... Yeah. 
Well, we are at the end of our podcast on Skyfall 2012, 50 Years of Bond, which means that the next one we'll be looking at is Spectre. Mm, Looking forward to that, Natalie. You know what, Stu? It's been a long build-up of (laughs) 24, no, 23. Well, 24 with Never Say Never. Yes, that's right. This will technically be our 25th podcast, although not the 25th officially sanctioned Eon Productions Bond film, of course. That will be no time to die. (laughs) But Spectre, I have not seen it since I saw it in the cinemas and walked out really angry. So (laughs) I am really interested to see how this will go. So until next time, people, that is it. Alison, how can people follow you on Twitter? Yes, I'm at Alison Sandy. I did get onto Twitter very early, so Alison Sandy, just one word. It, I must have, you know, the first Alison Sandy to do this. So no numbers, nice. just at Alison Sandy. The lovely Alison Sandy. It has been so nice to have you. I'm so glad that you are our final guest on the Raven On series so far because Stu and I are going to do Spectre just by ourselves. We're bringing it home. <laughs> because I'm going to rant a lot and I didn't want to subject anyone to that. <laughs> That's no, only enough. I get subjected to that. <laughs> so please do go follow Alison Sandy on Twitter. Of course, you can follow at Disco Stew. I am at Girl Clumsy. Please say hello. The website is nataliebohensky.com for all of the recaps. Facebook.com slash Natalie's Throne for the Facebook page. And if you are interested in supporting my writing and podcasting, patreon.com slash girlclumsy is where you can do that. And thank you so much to everyone on Patreon who is so patient and uh, loving. Until next time, all we can say is, I'm Natalie. I'm Stu. And we're shaken. Not stirred. If the sky falls.